All right, I'm going to ask you a question. When I say the name O.J. Simpson, don't answer out loud. What do you think of? That guy? USC? Heisman Trophy winner? That guy who was the player of the year in 1974 for the Buffalo Bills? That guy who was in the Hertz commercials? Anybody remember those? Him running through the airport and jumping over the bench? Anybody remember that? Come on. I'm not that old. OJ, my man. He was also in the Naked Gun movies, right? Anybody remember that? Is that what you think of when you think of O.J. Simpson? Uh-oh. Is this what you think of when you think of O.J. Simpson? How bizarre was that, by the way? For those young folks here who don't know what's going on, O.J., this guy that we just talked about, he was a Heisman Trophy winner, which in college football is the means that you're the best player in the country. He played professional football, had a great career, he was in commercials and movies. And then in 1994, something happened. There was talk, accusation, that O.J., who was driving this white Bronco, he's right there, had murdered his wife. There had been talks for a while that he was abusive to her. And then his wife turned up dead and they started looking for him as a suspect. So this is in L.A. going up the freeway. He's going about 45 miles an hour, which is weird. Look at all the... This is literally happening. We, we saw this on TV. It was happening. All these policemen are chasing this white Bronco up the freeway in Los Angeles. And it went on for quite a while before they finally got him. So the same guy who had hoisted a Heisman Trophy, had played professional football, had been a national celebrity. He did some sideline uh, interviews and stuff for uh, pro football after he retired. He did the commercials. He did the movies. And then they arrested him for the murder of his wife. And then they put on TV forever his trial. It was... I mean, just every channel was the O.J. Simpson trial. And everybody was pretty sure that he had killed his wife. And they were pretty sure. But something happened at the trial. Anybody remember this? The defense attorneys, which are his attorneys, they came up with this ploy, this thing... These are the gloves that they found at the crime scene of his murdered wife. And they said, look, the gloves don't fit. It couldn't have been O.J. that killed his wife. All of the evidence pointed to O.J. killing his wife, by the way. I will go on record this morning and say, I really believe O.J. Simpson killed his wife. But his attorney said, if the glove does not fit, you must acquit. And this guy here was the judge. Anybody remember his name? Lance Ito. I-T-O. This guy was in charge of being the judge for this pretty much open and shut case. But if you know anything about trials in America... What is, the, what is the one thing, if you're a defense attorney for somebody, what's the one thing you're trying to provide to get your client off? Reasonable doubt. Well, my man Lance Ito, because the glove did not fit, he did acquit O.J. Simpson. There was reasonable doubt in this man's mind, nobody else in the country... But this guy said, reasonable doubt, not guilty. And O.J. Simpson walked away. Now, 
There's more to the O.J. Simpson story, but we're not going to focus on that this morning. The judge. The judge has the job of determining whether this person on trial is guilty or not. This morning, we're going to talk about God as judge. And we're going to see who he finds guilty. And if you know anything about where we've been in Romans so far, it's pretty much everybody. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. We're going to be covering verses 11 through 17 this morning. And if you can and if you will, let's stand up in reverence to the Word of God as we read it. And again, know that that's why we're doing that. We're standing up to reverence the Word of God to say, you know what, I'm going to change my posture because these are the very words of God. Let me read it. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Let's pray. God, we are in the middle of some real hard Bible. That's no reason to turn back. That's no reason, God, to shut the thing and say, "Ah, we're just not going to deal with it. God, we're going to deal with it. And by the grace provided by Your Holy Spirit, we're going to understand it, and we're going to know how it applies to our lives. So we trust You to do what only You can do, and we'll love You more as a result, even as we see You on the throne as our judge. We trust Your help. We trust Your goodness in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Let me first try to quickly recap where we've been on our... Remember back in the, in the introduction to Romans, we talked about climbing Everest? Well, we've barely left base camp, truthfully. Um, we've been through chapter 1 and the first section of chapter 2 Back in chapter 1, Paul announces himself and he announces who he is and what his desire for the Romans is in writing this letter. He gives us the gospel. He says in chapter 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. And then he made the proclamation, which we said it really sets the stage for the whole book the proclamation that the just shall live by faith. And what Paul set out to do after that is to show that everybody who has ever lived and who will ever live is bound up under sin. And at the end of chapter 1, he looks specifically at non-religious people, the outsiders, and he goes through this long laundry list of sins that they commit. You remember that? When we talked about homosexuality, gossip, slanderers, disobedient to parents, and he went on and on and on and on. And he's just saying, this is what happens. God gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. And he just really beat them up. And then what we saw in that message was, if you remember, if you weren't here, what we saw in that message was, and such were some of you, which is what Paul would say to the Corinthians but you were washed, you were purchased, you were cleansed. And then what Paul does, starting in chapter 2, is he turns his attention from the pagan world, the unbelieving world, and he goes to the religious world. 
And He shows them, who are you to pass judgment on these guys that we just talked about when you do the very same things? So the end of chapter 1, we looked at rebellious flesh and how it will be condemned by God. At the beginning of chapter 2, we saw religious flesh and how even religious flesh will be condemned by God. And that's where we've been so far. And Paul is in the middle of building his case that every man, every woman, every child is bound up under sin and has no hope of any reasonable doubt as to why God should not condemn them. We see in the first three chapters of Romans some really, really bad news. And it circles in and zeroes in until it points its finger right at me and says, I, I, I am condemned. And at the end, well, I don't want to get ahead of myself. At the end of our passage last week, we saw that God will judge everybody, which sets the stage for Lancedo today, right? We're going to see God as judge, and we're going to see something to me that's pretty shocking. As what we read is that God shows no partiality. People who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. Those who sinned under the law will be judged by the law. It's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law. Now what we saw last week was that God's going to judge everybody according to their works. And we didn't get into that much last week. We're going to get into it more today. So let's start with verse 11, which is... Hey, if you want a good memory verse for Romans, here you go. Romans 2.11. I think we could memorize it before we left the building today, right? For God shows no partiality. Who just memorized that? I did. Romans 2.11. For God shows no partiality. Romans 2.11. Note the first word of the sentence. The first word of this sentence is what? Four. Now, we'll see that a lot today. If you look up there, you'll see some fours, right? Four, four, four. There's three fours right there. I think there's one more, which gives us four fours. How about that? It's a divine conspiracy. We're being ambushed today. So we'll see four a lot. Now, when you see a four in Scripture, what's it doing? It's a concluding thought, right? It's saying... This happened for this. This happened because this. Okay? If I say I fell down for my shoe was untied, first you'd know I was lying because Crocs don't have any laces. You're welcome. Something caused something else, right? So this starts out with for God shows no partiality. But this is referring back to the previous thought and it seeks to transition to a conclusion, to a concluding thought about it. And what was that thought? It goes back to verses 6 through 10, which I don't have up here. In verse 6, Paul says, God will render to each one according to his works. And then he goes on to contrast two groups of works and workers, those who seek glory and honor and immortality, who will get eternal life, and those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, for those folks there will be wrath and fury. Those who do evil and those who do good. For the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. So the for here is saying God's judgment will come evenly and equitably for Jews, Greeks, or whoever because God does not and will not judge according to someone's lineage. Where they were born, what people group they're a part of, Jew, Greek, it doesn't matter. Actually, the word for shows partiality is a compound Greek word that means... Now get this, listen. This word partiality, shows partiality, means to receive face. And actually, they can't find this word anywhere in Greek literature before the Bible. So there's thoughts that they're just trying to, to reach for words, trying to... Anybody ever make up a word? Remember a couple of weeks ago I said smorzing? Remember? I said there'll be some smorzing going on? 
And you just make up a word to try to explain what's going on. That's exactly what's going on here. Paul's reaching for language. He's saying God doesn't receive face. Now, what does that mean? Putting the thought in the sentence, it would read, for God does not receive face. And it means that God does not look at someone and judge them based on their heritage or their standing on the earth, but He judges kings and peasants the same, Jews and Greeks the same, men and women the same. Now, verses 1 through 10 establish that the religious person can be just as wrong as the belligerent sinner. If they judge the sinner and yet do the same things either outwardly or inwardly, they are just as prone to be judged harshly by God themselves. And now get this, especially young folks, teenagers, and it doesn't matter if they grew up in church or not. They will be judged as the evildoers that they are because God does not receive face. God does not show partiality. I promise you, if you show up at the judgment seat of God and say, but I went to church every time the doors were open, that's not going to get you in. God's looking at your heart and He's seeing sin. He's not looking at your church membership. Not that church membership is not important. It is important. But church membership does not save you. God does not receive face. He does not show partiality. He is fair and just in His judgments. Now that's going to be incredibly important to note as we go forward. God is just, God is fair, and He does not judge based on our outward appearances or our quote-unquote spiritual lineage. So that's verse 11. Four. Now, verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Okay. So, how will God judge all these people that we've referenced? If God doesn't show favoritism or partiality, how can He fairly judge everyone? I mean... Let's get this straight. Some people know more than others, right? Some people know more about the law of God than other people do. Is that true? How many people do you think know the law of God? Now remember, why did God say that He chose the Israelites? Because they were a great numerous people? No. He said, actually, it's just the opposite. I didn't choose you because you were big and numerous. I chose you because you were the smallest of the clans of the earth. So God sets His affection on Abraham, one man, and He says, I'm going to build a nation out of you. Now through that time, God had spoken some things to some people. He walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, and we see Noah receiving a word from God. And we see Now who died in Noah's flood? Basically everybody except Noah, his wife, his sons, and their wives. And some animals. So who knew the law of God then? Now, it doesn't seem fair to me for God to judge people who do not know His law. It seems to me like for those who don't know the law, the glove does not fit, right? They could stand before God and go... I've never heard what you're talking about. Right? You guys are stone-faced today. You're like, you're not getting me with that junk. I know where you're going with this. It's good. I'm glad you do. So how will God judge all these people we've referenced? How will God judge the billions of people who've never heard His law? Because it would seem fair to me that he'd have a different standard for him. Well, you don't know the law. So, does that make sense? Notice that this verse 2 starts with what word? That's not a trick question. Three-letter word, four. Three-letter word spells four. Four 
So Paul is referencing the previous verse and tying this verse in with it. God shows no partiality for. God showing no partiality flows out of what or results in what? For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Now I'm going to, I'm going to be honest with you, and I, I, I tend to not want to do this because sometimes it turns people's switches off. This is hard. Okay? All the more reason to dig in. Paul reasons very linearly. I think uh, Hamlet mentioned that last week. John kind of talked in this big circle. It's like he said the same thing over and over again. And he was trying to drill it into our heads and he spoke very affectionately. Paul is a very rational, this leads to this, leads to this, leads to this, leads to this, and here's the outcome. And he speaks in ways, even Peter would say in Second Peter, some of the things that he talks about are hard to grasp. This is one of those things. But he lays it out very rationally. So we're looking at this four. For all, have sinned with, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Now this sentence could really cause some problems if we don't know what Paul is saying or why he is saying it under the leadership and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. This verse is saying one's standing with the law affects how that person is judged. Our natural inclination would be to think that it would be fair for God to not judge those who haven't heard the law or who don't know the law. Because what is being referenced here is the law of God. Who was God's law given to? The Israelites who were led out of Egypt at the time of Moses and their ancestors after them. If God gave them the law, what should He do in reference to judging them? Stay with me. Well, it's obvious that for God to judge them according to the law, for God to judge someone according to a law that they've never been taught would be unjust, right? Does that make sense? To punish someone for doing what they didn't know was wrong would just be cruel, wouldn't it? So what's God to do? Now according to this verse, He will judge those who don't know the law without the law. Those who have the law will be judged by the law. But all who have sinned without the law will also what? Look at the verse. All who have sinned without the law will get off scot-free. The glove doesn't fit. We must acquit, right? No? For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. They will perish without the law. That word perish literally means to be lost, ruined, or given over to eternal misery and hell. But why? Why give someone over to eternal misery and hell if they've never heard or known the law of God? That doesn't seem like a nice, loving, benevolent God, does it? Let's keep looking. Go to verse 13. What's it start with? Thank you. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So, lo and behold, we start this verse with four. God will judge those who have the law by the law, and those without the law will perish without the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now wait, what? God can judge this way because those who do are righteous, not those who hear. Now I hope, I hope, I hope that this causes some problems in your thought processes as we tread upon it. What did I just say? It's not people who hear the law that will be justified, but people who do the law that will be justified. Now, didn't the same Holy Spirit say through Paul back in chapter 1 that the righteous man will live by what? 
Not works. The righteous man shall live by faith. And didn't that same Holy Spirit also say through Paul in Ephesians 2 that we're saved by grace through faith? Now why would the same Spirit say here that the doers of the law will be justified? Which is it? Is it grace and faith or is it doing the law? Hmm. Is it hearing with faith or doing the law that justifies us? Both can't be right, right? Look at the verse again and keep in mind the four. Verse 12 is saying God will judge based on a knowledge of God's law. And then we see it's because hearing the law doesn't make you righteous. Okay, good so far. But the doers of the law will be justified. Now who does the law? In and of ourselves, nobody. None of us can. But, empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, any human can do the law. Stay with me. Stay with me. Come on. Pull the seatbelt a little tighter. Empowered by the Spirit of God, any human can do the will of God. So in the end... Our deeds will show if we have the Spirit or not. Tim Keller puts it like this. And he starts out his quote with, here's another way to put it. The apples on an apple tree prove life, but they don't provide it. The apples are the evidence that the apple tree is alive, but the roots are what pull in the nourishment to keep it that way. In the same way, faith in Christ alone provides new life, He gives His righteousness, the righteousness of God, to anybody who believes. But a changed life of righteousness is what proves we have real faith. So in the end, God's looking for apples. But it's not the apples that made the apples. Remember 1 John? John said over and over and over and over that we can tell who knows Christ and who doesn't by what? By what they do. Believers do righteous deeds. Unbelievers do unrighteous deeds. Now, in one of those messages in 1 John, if you were here, you might remember that I said that all an unbeliever can do is sin. That's all he can do. Even his most righteous works are Filthy rags. All an unbeliever can do is sin. Now believers can sin or do righteous deeds. Because we can choose to follow the Spirit or not. So since a believer can do righteous deeds, because we can choose to follow the Spirit or not, the believers are those who can and do the law. And they will be justified when God judges both Jew and Gentile. Just because you heard the law doesn't make you able to keep it. But, according to what Paul's saying here, hearing the law does make you accountable to that law. And, just because you haven't heard the law doesn't mean God won't judge you because you don't have to hear the law to know what's right and wrong. And you say, wait a second, what do you mean by that? Look at verses 14 and 15. I'm going to have to switch here. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Now that is loaded with implications. Isn't it? Yes, yes it is, Jason. These two verses are pregnant with implications. And of course, verse 14 starts with what? Thank you. Play my game, please. It's so much easier if you play the game. Verse 14 starts with four. To explain why it's not hearing the law that justifies a man, the Spirit gives us an example of Gentiles who don't have the law. 
He says, when they who don't have the law, and here's huge words, by nature, do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they don't have the law. This points to people doing things that are right simply because they are right. Well, how do they know that they're right? Who determines that? It's not the written law of God that they are obeying because they don't have it. They don't know it. Paul says they are a law to themselves. And then in verse 15, he says they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Now, this is what theologians, theologians, theologians call immediate revelation. Anybody ever heard that phrase? Immediate revelation. Immediate revelation is natural revelation. Revelation through the medium of creation. The sense that the fact that I can tell that the world follows certain rules and orders points to a Creator who established this order. That's immediate revelation or natural revelation. Now, immediate revelation is revelation with no medium. You with me? Okay, let me try it again. Mediate or medium revelation is when God uses something to reveal Himself. The table. This is my body. I'm giving you a picture of who I am. I'm giving you a picture of what I'm like. Immediate revelation is God shooting straight to the heart. Not using something else, but just bearing witness within the person himself or herself. Immediate revelation is revelation with no medium. It isn't God revealing Himself to someone through something. It is God revealing Himself directly to someone. Here, it refers to God writing His law. And where does He do, where does he do that? On the hearts of individuals. Even individuals who don't have the written law of God. Immediate revelation. So, in Paul's efforts to line up a case that hold that every person is accountable to God, he comes right down to the very heart of man and tells us that the law of God is written where? On each man's heart. C.S. Lewis explains it like this. Everyone has heard people say things like this. How'd you like it if anyone did the same to you? Give me a bit of your orange, I gave you a bit of mine. The man who says this is appealing to some standard of behavior which he expects the other to know about. End of quote. There is written on every person's heart. Now let me restate that. There is written on every person's heart the truth that murder is wrong. That stealing is wrong. That adultery is wrong. And we could testify to that because we don't want anybody to murder us, right? We don't want anybody to steal from us. It offends us. We know that it's wrong because it's somewhere down in our hearts we know this is wrong. Now we may use different means to justify ourselves when we partake in such activities... But even the fact that we feel like we have to justify ourselves show that we know that we are wrong. Ravi Zacharias tells of a time when an angry atheist interrupted one of his messages by standing up and proclaiming, there is no God because there's so much bad, so much wrong in the world. Ravi calmly replied, you say there is bad and wrong in the world, and I would agree with that. But for there to be a bad, there has to be a good. And for there to be a bad and good, there has to be a moral law. For there to be a moral law, there has to be a moral law giver. So in your argument that there's no God, you have proven the very existence of God. To which the angry atheist replied, What was I asking again? (laughs) Oh, and we know, church, we know individuals that there is a right and a wrong. We know it. So when we do what we know to be right, we are a law to ourselves and show that the work of the law is written on our hearts. And the verse concludes by saying that not just our hearts, 
but our consciences also bear witness. Okay, I'm good. I'm there. That our conscience also bears witness, and the battle between right and wrong and our consciences alternately accuse or excuse us. I love that. Isn't that exactly what your conscience does? Everybody's? We're either feeling accused by our conscience or we feel excused by it. I'm bad and what I did was bad, or I'm alright and what I did was good. The battle, this battle, is the law of God manifesting itself in and through us. And as such, we are all without excuse. And we will all be judged by God for our deeds. That innocent pagan in Africa has the law of God written on his heart. That person that's never heard the gospel has the law of God written on his heart. And you know what he does? He breaks that law. Because we are all born into and under sin. Every one of us. And as a result, we are broken and we rebel against God naturally, even though we know that what we're doing is wrong. Now let's look at the last verse, the only one that doesn't start with a four. On that day when, according to my gospel, Paul says, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Now look at this. Paul refers to all of this coming to be, quote, on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This verse is the end of the sentence, started back in verse 15, so let's tie it all together. They show that the work of the law was written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Now, get this picture. A man who never had the law of God given to him stands before God and is being judged. The picture we get here is that he stands there, his own thoughts are alternately accusing and excusing him before God himself. Well, I did that one thing one time, that was pretty good, so he should be happy. And then his conscience says, well, but there was that other thing that other time and that was not so good. So, where do I stand? As God passes judgment on him, his deeds are recounted and the very secrets of his heart are exposed. Whether he has ever been shown the law of God or not, his heart is laid bare and the deeds referenced either show that he was Christ's or he was not. This is hard. But remember Jesus' words. If you've got a Bible, turn to Matthew 25. And I don't have this up here. I'm sorry, I should have. Except my apologies. Apologies. Sorry. Matthew chapter 25. This is uh, the Olivet Discourse. This is Jesus talking about what's going to happen at the end of time. And He talks about all the nations will stand before Him and that He will separate them like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He says He'll put the sheep on His right hand and the goats on His left. And He turns to the sheep first and He says, Come ye, blessed of My Father, enter into the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world because you did this, 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 and this. And they say, when did we do that to you, Lord? We don't remember. He's like, if you did it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. Now look at verse 41, starting in the second verse of, uh, in the second sentence of 41 that starts with, depart from me. This is where he talks to the goats. This is what he says, starting from 41 where it says, depart. Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty? Or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it, To one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Anybody listen to Keith Green? Yes, Rodney. You ever heard his sheep and the goats? At the end of it, he says, 
And what separates the sheep from the goats is what they did and didn't do. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. It's exactly what Jesus is saying here in this parable. Their deeds showed that they were not Christ's. And those deeds, or lack of them, is what is used to reveal the secrets of their hearts. And who is doing the judging there in Matthew? According to Matthew 25, it's the Son of Man. Who is that? The Son of Man is Jesus Christ. Here in Romans, it's that same Son of Man when Paul says that God judges the secrets of men, how? By Christ Jesus. God in Christ will be the judge. One day, all men will stand before Jesus Christ and they will be judged by their deeds. The righteous will be judged for their righteous deeds as their sins are covered by the blood of Christ. The unrighteous will be judged for their evil deeds and punished accordingly either by the written law or by the law that was written upon their hearts. And Paul drops the microphone and says, you're all accountable. Every single one of you, Jew, Gentile, king, peasant, man, woman, you're all held accountable for your deeds. No, you are not saved by your deeds. We'll get to that in a minute. But you will be held accountable on the last day for your deeds when you stand before Jesus Christ. Okay, so now what? We move somewhat quickly through these six verses to get a general overall feel of what's being said and how it relates to Paul's argument of every man being prone to the judgment of God. Now, now we have to see how this affects our lives now. And as we do that, we're going to also take the big picture and make sure that we understand what is being said in relation to the overall arc of the Bible itself. If we don't, we run the danger of missing what is really going on here. Because taken out of context, taken out of the flow of thought of Scripture, this could really cause you some trouble. First, let's look at this justified by deeds thing. Now I want to pound into our hearts and minds that these statements here in Romans 2 do not in any way contradict the explicit truth of the Scriptures that we are saved by grace through faith. Paul is not here talking out of the other side of his mouth in regards to how we are saved. What he is saying is that if we have a grace that has saved us, that same grace will empower us to do righteous deeds to the point that it's the deeds that will be judged on the last day. We won't be judged by how big or strong our faith was. We'll be judged according to the deeds we've done after that salvation by grace. And guys, that's extremely important. He is also not saying that we have to have works in addition to our faith in order to be saved. It's not grace plus works that saves us. It is not grace plus works that saves us. He is simply reiterating that the grace that saved us saved us from the wrath of God to the point that there's no wrath left to be shown to us. So, the only thing that can be judged then is our works. If you are not a Christian on that last day, you have no faith to speak of, and your works will be what brings the wrath of God on you. You will be punished for your evil deeds. And outside of grace, outside of faith, that is every one of them. That's why Paul said you're storing up wrath every day, everything that you do. So it's not works that saves us, but once we are saved, we will see works. That's the first thing we want to keep in mind. Second, why would I say that all of a sinner's deeds are evil? I'm going to bring that up again. <clears throat> first, we have to define what evil is. We tend to think of evil as doing something wrong or bad to somebody else. I referenced earlier stealing, murder, adultery. Those are evil deeds and they are done to other people, but the focus that makes it evil is the fact that it breaks God's law. It is God who has said not to do that 
And it is God who has written that law on every man's heart. So, to transgress that law is to defy God Himself. And that is what evil is. Evil is defying God. Evil is an affront to the holiness of God. Evil is mainly God-focused, not people-focused. Let that sink in for a second. Evil is going against the law of God and the God who made the law. So God has commanded in the Scriptures that men everywhere should repent and believe the gospel. Outside of obeying that command by grace through faith and being made right with God, all our deeds are evil. Paul is again building an airtight case that every man, everywhere, every time, all times is accountable to God and that every man deserves the righteous judgment and punishment for their evil deeds. Here in this passage, he says that man's evil is revealed by the witness of the law upon his own heart. This evil is what sets man at odds against a holy God who is by his very nature, listen, necessarily having to punish all evil. For God to be good, He has to punish all evil. And we just established that evil is anything we do that is transgressing the will or the law of God. The judge of all the earth has to punish evil to be a good judge. What do you think of Lance Edo? Was he a good judge? I don't think he was a good judge. I would have convicted O.J. Simpson. I would have looked at all the other evidence and said, maybe those gloves don't fit because your hands are swollen. Maybe those gloves don't fit because you've got some latex gloves on your hands that makes your hands a little bit bigger than when you warm the night you killed your wife. I don't think Lance Edo is a very good judge because why? I don't think he punished evil. Evil is an affront to God. And one day, every man, woman, and child will stand before God with the law of God written on their hearts. And God will punish everything that was against His law if we're not hidden in Christ. And that makes Him a good judge. That's tough. That's hard. And that's exactly what Paul wants in this argument. He wants you to see how hopeless this is. So if every man has the law of God written on his heart and violates that law, every man deserves judgment consistent with punishment and condemnation. Every man is without excuse. Now this is huge both in the flow of thought in Romans and in our everyday lives. If we understand that we are by nature children of wrath, Christians, we will celebrate the grace of God all the more. I deserve death, hell, and the grave, but I get inheritance with Christ and eternal life in the presence of God. Grace is me not getting what I deserve, but quite the opposite. Grace is me getting what I don't deserve. And I didn't earn it by my deeds. I was given it so that there could be deeds present in my life. We will see salvation as an undeserved gift that motivates us to obey God's law that is written in our Bibles and on our hearts. Our deeds will be grace-empowered while our consciences will be clear, knowing that Jesus absorbed the wrath due to us so that we can live lives that proclaim the freedom He purchased for us. Having been a child of wrath, according to Ephesians 2, we are now co-heirs with Christ, according to Romans 8. Yeah, don't forget, the good news is coming in Romans, even though right now we're in the midst of a lot of really hard and bad news. So if I understand that I deserve hell, but that I've been given heaven, that will help me celebrate that salvation all the more. That's the second thing I want us to see this morning. 
And that leads me to the last point of application that I get from all of this. And this application point is simple. Preach the gospel. Knowing that every man is without excuse, whether he has heard the law of God or not, it makes it imperative that we preach the gospel to everyone we can. Paul would say, I am under obligation both to Jews and to Greeks to preach the gospel. Why would he say that? Because he knows as he looks around, every set of eyes that he looks in will be focused on the person of Jesus Christ one day to be judged. And they will be without excuse. And what's the only hope that they have to escape that judgment of wrath? The only hope that they have is the gospel. Back in chapter 1 verse 16, Paul said, "...the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, both Jew and Gentile." If every man is going to be judged by a holy God and the gospel is the only thing that has the power to save them, how vital is it that the gospel be preached? Look around at your home. Look around at your workplace. Look around in this building this morning. Everyone you see needs to hear the gospel. No one is exempt from God's judgment because they didn't hear If they were, then it would be best to shelter all your loved ones from the gospel. The most merciful thing you could do would would be to ensure that they never hear it so that they won't be accountable to it. And that sounds ludicrous, but the logic stands. If they won't be held accountable to it, if they don't hear it, well then let's just not preach it to them. That way they can stand before God and not be accountable. Nobody thinks that way, right? then why would we not preach the gospel to everyone we see? If everybody's standing outside the door there and you've got the key that can let them in, why would you not, hey, key, let me show you how to get in here. I want you to let this sink in. Every person that has ever lived will stand before God and be held accountable to the law of God, whether it was the written law or the law that's been revealed in their hearts. And you, Christian, house the gospel in your very being that can deliver them from the wrath of God. What are you going to do with it? Celebrate it and say, well, I'm saved, praise God. When I stand before God, He'll judge my good deeds. And I've seen a few. That's good. God, you've produced some fruit in me, and I'm glad. That's a good place to start. What we've seen today, the law of God is written on each and every heart, and that alone is enough to condemn someone who is not obedient to that law. Their only hope, our only hope, is the gospel. The truth of how we are all born in sin. Sinners who are destined to face eternity in hell because we all have a nature in us that is contrary to the will of God. But by grace, God came in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, was sentenced to die, and was crucified on a cross where He took the wrath of God upon Himself for the sins that we have committed, every one of us. He was raised to life on the third day and then ascended to heaven after showing Himself to be alive to over 500 people over a period of 40 days. Stop a second. What if 500 people saw O.J. Simpson kill his wife? You think that glove would have made any difference at all? No. 500 people saw you do it, Mr. Simpson. Five, more than 500 people saw that Jesus Christ was alive after He had been dead. That's pretty compelling evidence. And I love what Paul says there in that passage. He says, actually, you can go talk to them because most of them are still alive. And they'll testify to you, yes, I saw Jesus Christ alive after He was dead. That's pretty good testimony. 500 people. And I say that to say, 
this thing we call Christianity is not just some ethereal thing that's off in the nebulous heavens. It's true. It's, it's here. It's right in front of us. It's very tangible. It's very provable. It's very witnessable. Over 500 people over a period of 40 days saw Him alive, and now He sits enthroned as the righteous King and Judge of the universe and will one day judge every man, woman, and child. One day, listen to me, individuals, He will judge you. You will stand before the judgment seat of God. And if you have not placed your faith in what Jesus Christ has done, your evil deeds will be judged. You will be punished for your evil deeds. You will spend eternity in hell in never-ending anguish and pain. But, if you will today look to Him who will judge you and say, I believe that you, my judge, will also be my defense attorney that you will step out from behind the bench and come and place your arm around me and pronounce me not guilty because of what you've done. Get a hold of that. Christian salvation is about looking to Jesus Christ and saying, I believe you are who you said you are. I believe you are God in the flesh. And I believe that your work on the cross paid the penalty for my sins. I deserve hell, but you're choosing to give me heaven because you took my punishment. If you will do that the good, righteous, holy judge of the universe will look at you and judge you for the deeds that you have done that were fruit showing that you had grace active in your life. And I'm here to tell you, it's the best news in the world. This is not all there is. That's not all there is. There is eternity. And though it's hard sometimes, saving faith placed in Jesus Christ as a gift of God, as a gift of grace, is the only option that we have to see eternity in the presence of God and not be cast out. Our only hope is to repent and place our trust in Jesus to save us from the wrath of God that is coming against the sons of disobedience. It's a simple matter of trusting not ourselves for our salvation, but instead trusting the life and work of Christ as what pleases God and saves us. So admit that you're a sinner who needs a Savior. Believe that Jesus is that Savior. Place your trust in Him to satisfy God's righteous requirements, which are perfection and holiness. And know that God loves to shower His grace on those who trust Him and His way and His Son and that that righteous life will produce fruit in your life so that you might know eternity with God in heaven forever. Let's pray. God, the book has shut us all up under sin. We cannot save ourselves. Our deeds will not save us. But yet we will be judged by our deeds. So we ask, God, that You would bear witness of the law that is written on our hearts, that You would show us our need for a Savior, and God, that You would open the eyes of our hearts that we would see that Jesus Christ is that Savior and that there is no other. Your Word says that there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. Jesus Himself said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through Me. So any hope we have of righteous deeds comes from the person of Christ. May we forsake our deadly doing and trust Christ so that we may know and be assured that when we stand before You, the wrath has been absorbed and the deeds that will be judged are the deeds that You've made possible by Your Spirit. God, I thank You for the book of Romans. I thank You for Your Holy Spirit superintending the writing of the book of Romans, and that there is no flaw in it. And as such, you have shut us up under sin and shown us our need for a Savior. 
All of us. Every single one of us. May we know the truth of that and walk in the truth of that and preach that gospel to other people. God, open our mouths to preach the gospel. Open our ears to receive it so that you might be glorified. So that when we stand before you, we'll be judged equitably and fairly. And we know that we will. Thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stay and eat with us if you can. We would like to have you. Have a great day. Have a great week. Hope to see you Wednesday.